0: In the 1850s, most Americans did their evening reading by the light of the fire. Electric lights were not commercially available, and even oil lamps were a luxury many could not afford. Without radio or TV, poetry served as a popular entertainment for families around the country. The fireside poets were among the most popular writers around. They favored conventional rhyme schemes and meters making their poems easy to memorize and recite and contributing to their popularity in both schools and homes. The Firesides were the landscape painters of American poetry. They emphasized natural beauty and virtues like honor and personal responsibility. Their poems were intellectual, didactic, and concerned issues of the mind. Meanwhile, in Brooklyn, New York, a new poet was trying something different. In his 1855 book, Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman turned his poetic gaze on the body.
1: There's, there's certainly moments throughout um, his great poem Song of Myself where, you know, he'll say the scent of these armpits is finer than any prayer.
0: <laughs> and you really, he, really? Other poets and readers recoiled at Whitman's self-celebration. But this wasn't narcissism. He wasn't speaking just about his body or even his self. For Whitman, the self couldn't be separated from everything around it.
1: What Whitman says of a self is that a self is made of everything that came before, of everything that's pouring in from the outside world at any moment.
0: Whitman was creating a new definition of the self, a self that, quote, contains multitudes. He was defining a new American poetry a poetry that was limitless and embodied. And he was defining a new vision of America itself.
1: Whitman writes in the preface to the first edition of Leaves of Grass that he publishes in 1855, these United States are themselves the greatest poem. That's a pretty bold claim, both for the United States and for poetry. And that this poet wanted his art to play a role in defining um, the perfect union, that perfect union that the framers had articulated but hadn't understood, and that he wanted that at a moment when that union was fraying, and he wanted it so much that he would he would write these United States are themselves the greatest poem, um, speaks to A largeness of ambition, both for the nation and for poetry, that I think over the years has made its impact.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Elisa New, a professor of English at Harvard University and the creator and host of the television show Poetry in America, to discuss Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Walt
1: Whitman was actually just the son of a Brooklyn carpenter. He worked as a journalist um, for a whole variety of newspapers, both in Brooklyn uh, and Manhattan, and and started, in fact, as a printer. And so he was a a
0: working man. Being a printer was hard work. Whitman set each piece of metal type by hand and powered the printing press with a foot pedal. It was a full-body job.
1: Whitman, his whole life, and certainly all over Leaves of Grass, is interested in... The great intelligence of the body, um, the artfulness of um, people who work in all sorts of crafts. And I think the fact that he evolves from printer to journalist to poet shows in his own story something about the poetry that he would eventually write.
0: So when when does he start writing poetry? Where are they— published, and and what gives him the idea to write this larger collection?
1: Well, when Walt Whitman decides to be a poet, he, he thinks big, and he starts writing journal entries to himself, not only conceiving the poem as, you know, cousin to these United States, but also calling the book he would write the New American Bible. And so he is not a poet who thinks about... I'll just publish a, you know, a little sheaf of lyrics and send them around and see what the world thinks of them. He wants to make a major statement.
0: When it came time to publish Leaves of Grass, Whitman went to a print shop where he had worked and printed every page of the book by hand. The first edition included 12 untitled poems.
1: After he's published the book, he sends it to Ralph Waldo Emerson.
0: Ralph Waldo Emerson was one of the leading writers at the time. He was a member of the Transcendentalist Movement, a literary and philosophical movement that pushed back against scientific rationalism. He was one of Whitman's influences, and he loved the book.
1: Emerson says, you know, I had to rub my eyes a little to see if this sunbeam were an illusion. And then he says, of the book that it seems to him a marvelous combination of the New York Herald and the Bhagavad Gita.
0: The New York Herald was a popular daily newspaper at the time, and the Bhagavad Gita is one part of an ancient Hindu epic. This was an extraordinary praise, and Whitman wasn't shy about showing it
1: off. That story is worth telling because Whitman uh, very immodestly and brashly, and to Emerson's Chagrin not only uh, prints it, just runs off another page and begins to bind Emerson's letter into new copies of Leaves of Grass, but he puts one of Emerson's sentences, namely, I greet you at the beginning of a great career in gold on the spine of his book. All this to say that he's really a hustler. You know, a genius. No hesitation at self promotion. No hesitation at self promotion. He's very um, bumptious. And and of course, the initial um, Leaves of Grass is full of material that shocked, um, full of sexual imagery, full of descriptions of women under their clothes and men under their clothes that. When Emily Dickinson, Whitman's contemporary, when Emily Dickinson was asked if she had read Mr. Whitman, she said, "I have not. I heard he was disgraceful." <laughs> and so not only not a member of any sort of literary elite, but 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 really a um, a, a poet and a person willing to push all the boundaries. And yet, It's important to say Whitman's temperament and personality, which one reads in his poem, has a sweetness that does some of the work of delivering art that sometimes is unpalatable or even too radical for many readers.
0: Whitman's work represented a major shift from the poetry of his time, especially the fireside poets, who were the first American poets to rival the popularity of the British, This group was made up of five poets, William Cullen Bryant, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, John Greenleaf Whittier, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and James Russell Lowell. The fireside poets were largely influenced by 18th century English poetry, in both verse and image. The books
1: published by these poets, the firesides, would typically have a frontispiece image where the poet in a Glossy cravat, his beard lustrous. Stood in front of a bookcase, looking at a book, and the the image of the poet these uh, would project was um, intellectual,
0: sophisticated,
1: sophisticated, learned. intellectual. And if they had bodies, you certainly didn't know it. Whereas Whitman, his frontispiece portrait is a full body shot. He's got his hand on his hip. His shirt is open. You can see hair on his chest. Um, And he's looking at you in this come hither sort of way. And then one opens the book and the lines themselves run over from one page to another without breaks they don't rhyme it's hard to tell where one poem ends and the next begins whitman is writing in a style that's completely unconventional the conventional poets the poets of whitman's day wrote poems that you can kind of hold in your head <laughs> they they fit In your consciousness, you can carry them inside you. And Whitman writes a poem, and this is, for me, the real – what's really radical about him and irresistible about him. He writes a poem that's bigger than himself, that's bigger than itself, (laughs) that's bigger than any reader in the ways maybe that the United States, the idea of the United States, the potential of the United States – is bigger than its geographic boundaries. the The idea that 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 meaning lies beyond the constructs that we create is um, is in some ways the signal contribution that that Whitman made, and it's an it's a really inspiring contribution in a lot of areas for what it says about democracy, for what it says about ourselves. Um, for what it says about, you know, um, how much we understand about the world.
0: Do you think it's fair to characterize the fireside poets as drawing from the European tradition and trying to, you know, create European poetry? And is Whitman creating the first American poetry?
1: The firesides wanted to um, accomplish something pretty important for Americans. They wanted to help the country— have a culture, and have a global culture, right? They wanted to bring European forms to America, help Americans familiarize themselves with them, and then to
0: use them. These poets didn't want to invent a new global culture for America. They were comfortable with the literary traditions of old, and they were comfortable in their New England surroundings, surroundings that were isolated, scholarly, and overwhelmingly populated by people who looked like them.
1: They had no idea about what it was like to live in a city like New York, a city that was increasingly connected to the rest of the world by shipping, by commerce, a city that was becoming a real destination for immigrants around the world, that was becoming financial center. And so what Whitman saw and what he found poetic form to represent was an America that really was teeming and that really was diverse. So Whitman understood that America was going to be a place where As you moved around your world, you might see in any one day a thousand different people who came from different places who were strangers to you. And the the anonymity of a city and the stimulation of a city and the cut-up quality – to the perceptual experiences you have in a city where one second you're seeing this and the next second you're seeing that, and these things don't necessarily connect, the almost cinematic jerkiness of your experience where stimulations are just flooding you and creating new rhythms for you. Whitman understood that world, and he began to write in a form that encompassed that world.
0: So if, if Whitman is capturing some of these changes in American life, particularly around the wild growth of a city like New York, some of that change might be a rising sense of individualism, um, a sense of the possibility uh, and agency of every kind of person. Um, the famous line, I celebrate myself— Could you take us through what is Whitman's view of the self and how does it relate to this new frontier that's that's emerging?
1: I think many readers are really irritated, annoyed, and offended by the largeness of – The Whitmanian self, that self that says, I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume and everything belonging to me as good belongs to you. And even in his gestures of reciprocity and equality, um, some readers hear a a brag and a kind of obnoxious presumption. Um,
0: It's like they worry he veers into narcissism or – Instagram, Twitter-style, you know, self-celebration.
1: Yes, and Whitman's personality, his own personality, um, I think, tends in that direction. That said, I believe that Whitman's understanding of the self is actually so humble and so different from the Instagram look-at-me idea, that that selves. How do I say this? There is an impermanence, a porousness, a um, uh, an insubstantiality. Really, about the Whitmanian self. That by the end of the poem, "Song of Myself," uh, he writes, "I effuse myself in lacy jags," <laughs> which is to say. I'm like water. I'm like foam spreading uh on uh on a river. I'm dissipating. And I think the most radical and powerful and moving thing about the Whitmanian self is that it it actually doesn't really have boundaries. If you look for a core of interior solidity in the Whitmanian self you don't find it instead the self is a place of exchange is a place where the world is constantly educating it Whitman's the first poet i've ever read who who in every line is kind of reminding us that we're shedding skin cells right or that the air that we breathe came from a wind far away. And so that, that notion of selfhood as influenced by and constituted by the outer world rather than in the way we talk about it rather than full of its own individuality I think is one of the most exciting things about Whitman. I don't think Whitman is really much of an individualist even though he writes a poem called Song of Myself.
0: In another place he writes for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Exactly. Which does seem to suggest this kind of radical material equality among all of us. We're all bits of space.
1: One of the ways he does that in the poetry is to write lines that have a sort of atomic quality so that one gets a little bright shard of experience. And often that shard is exactly adjacent to another shard of experience and these are allowed to educate us about one another. And my, my very favorite two lines in Whitman that, that demonstrate this, they're from part 15 of Song of Myself, and here they are. The pure contralto sings in the organ loft. The carpenter dresses his plank his foreplane whistles its wild ascending lisp. So Whitman is giving us an image and invoking the sound of an opera singer or a choir singer in a some sort of elevated space of culture, the pure, and this contralto is pure. And then right next to that contralto, the carpenter dresses his plank, his foreplane whistles, its wild ascending lisp. And these two kinds of music, the music of high art and the music of the carpenter's labor, um, where the tongue of wood that is released from the carpenter's foreplane. There's an analogy suggested between that tongue and the tongue of the contralto uh, singing in the organ loft and the, the technique of putting those two little little bits, little shards together and letting them exchange atoms. He's he's going to bring them into a fundamental equality by pointing out um, the finest, finest details of, of sameness. And so Whitman's instrument of juxtaposition is also an instrument of social critique.
0: And just thinking about what did make America so different than Europe, well, it was, in a sense, a rejection of aristocracy which is partly a rejection of the idea that there are some people better than others. And um, that democratic intuition seems to lead to an orientation towards the world which looks for the wonder in the common and in the lowly. And and thinking about what Whitman does in his poetry is helps us see that wonder, and that beauty in the common stuff.
1: Absolutely. I mean, what stuff is more common than grass, (laughs) right? What stuff is lowlier (laughs) than grass? And to say, if you're looking for me, look under your boot soles, um, that is to say, I I am with those trodden underneath and we all return to the earth. I mean, there are many ways in which Whitman is going to remind us of our equality. Grass is such a fascinating image for that because when you think about grass, I mean, yeah, each one blade might be a little higher than another, (laughs) but it's kind of an accidental and not important. And the, the aggregate in grass is more important than any one... Blade, and there's a there's a kind of e pluribus unum <laughs> thing going on as as Whitman tries to figure out how do you celebrate the mass, how do you celebrate the democr- the whole polity, the whole body politic, and attend to the details. Um, He'll write of a clean-haired Yankee girl. (laughs) How extraordinary it is the way this poet can individualize. She's a Yankee girl. That's almost a stereotype. And then he gives her that little detail of clean-haired, and she becomes a portrait um, and a, and a, um, a genre study whom we can actually see. But at the same time, um, that attentiveness to every face and and the way way this poet is training us both to um, experience what it is to live in a crowd, what it is to live in a nation, what it is to um, be part of something much bigger than you are.
0: He's grappling with pluralism.
1: Exactly. But in grappling with pluralism— he doesn't want to lose his sense of the particular and the individual and in a way training our eye and our sensibilities so that we feel the largeness of pluralism and the inspiration of that and at the same time um, allowing us to s- to see those details. He's doing that too.
0: Well, and, and both plurality among other people who we encounter in the streets, but even a plurality within the famous line, I contain multitudes. Is he alluding to a belief that none of us are unified, that we are fragmented? Absolutely.
1: Whitman is absolutely um, pointing to a vision of the self as disunified, as mixed up, as blind to itself often more than other poets he will write about sleep (laughs) and all sorts of things happen when you're sleeping that you didn't know about in your waking life and he will often use dream tableaus in order to take us into the unruliness of the psyche uh, beyond where um, we understand ourselves and 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 that that a um, a lack of self-understanding <laughs> or a, an incompleteness of agency might be empowering as well. We tend to think everyone should know themselves we should have identities that are stable and we should feel our own agency. This poet is telling us that that is, Sort of an illusion. We don't really have agency. Where are we headed? Dying. Right? We are
0: We are not fundamentally in control. Well, he strikes me as a great poet of the body. And partly, I think, it tracks with his other interests of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Because what's more ordinary than our flawed, broken, smelly bodies? Yeah. And I think... What he does is he moves the poetic gaze from the soul and from the transcendent to the material, to the imminent. Yeah. And says, yes, our bodies are are imperfect, but they're glorious too, and they might be temporary, but what wonder we can accomplish in this life?
1: Absolutely. I mean, he does actually raise the stakes a little bit above that sack in as early as what became part five of song of myself he has body and soul on a lawn making love (laughs) and they're making love it's very clear there is sexual congress going on between the body and the soul and he says there i believe in you my soul but the other i am must not be a base to you and so why don't we just have body and soul let's unite them by having them frolic on the lawn. And that soul is embodied um, is, I think, um, the the point you're making, and I I agree with it entirely.
0: Because it seems like um, the belief in a soul, a Christian soul, encourages you to think of the self as unified because the soul is in charge and the soul is... Sort of, you know, heavenly in some way. Bodies, though, have appetites, have desires, have histories. And so you can see... And die. Bodies die. die. Yeah,
1: Yeah, bodies become other bodies. Bodies become grass. Bodies become dirt. And so there's nothing unified about that, right? Bodies are... Bodies tell the story that we are impermanent (laughs) and... And the soul lives on, but it's in the grass, right? Your soul now becomes part of the grass and the sky, and um, it you you are not in Whitman's cosmos, preserved in this little. Um, You're not an eternal
0: flower. <laughs> You're, You're an impermanent piece of grass. <laughs>
1: you are you are not an eternal flower.
0: Let's move now to impact. Okay. Um, So I'd like you to tell me how did Whitman change American letters, American arts, and American society? Obviously, he was not incredibly popular in his own time. His reputation has grown, Um, but now he's a towering figure. So I'd like to understand a little bit how that happened.
1: I think the first thing to say is that Whitman, Whitman is immensely inspiring to other poets. Whitman authorizes poets to believe that their howling (laughs) in the case of Allen Ginsberg or their kind of prophetic energies that converge on rage in the case of a poet like Martina Espada or or even their – Physical candor in the case of a poet like Sharon Olds, Whitman says to artists, go big, (laughs) go big. Believe that art is transformative. Believe in a cultural vanguard. Even if I, Whitman, didn't quite get to be that vanguard figure, art is required for our striving toward a a more perfect union. And so I think that there is an inheritance that is larger than influence. There's an inheritance that comes from Whitman that is about the crucial role that art plays uh, in transforming how we see the world.
0: One poet who Whitman influenced was Allen Ginsberg. Ginsberg was a core member of the beat generation of poets who were active in the mid-20th century. This was a conservative time in the United States that valued a traditional and narrow image of masculinity and the nuclear family. That certainly wasn't the image projected by an outspokenly gay poet like Ginsberg.
1: Ginsberg was authorized by Whitman to say, no, our feelings, (laughs) our feelings, Feelings matter. Our pain matters, and we are larger than our jobs, right? We are also those whom we love. I think in the in the case of Ginsburg, in a way that said, let us not um, forget that part of ourselves (laughs) that makes us most human. So. Um, one kind of really important impact that Whitman had was imagining a large enough role for the poet that um, that we'd be needed.
0: It wasn't just amusement. It wasn't. It could change culture. It
1: could change culture. And not just poetry, but um, but art, art itself.
0: In your mind, he inspires generations of artists to be ambitious like he was.
1: Absolutely. And to be prophets and to be critics, I think of the best of contemporary hip hop as absolutely in the Whitmanian tradition, right? The largeness, the loudness, the um the readiness to mount a public stage, to think about art and politics as naturally going together, rather than, you know, art belongs over here. And politics over there
0: and I I hadn't really thought of this before but he seems very future oriented which is just a deeply American orientation because we don't have a long history to get nostalgic about and built into the myth of the country is this ongoing effort at perfection we'll never reach it but will always strive to live up to the ideals. And it seems like he does that really well. He, he celebrates what we have. He acknowledges where we come short. But he maintains a certain kind of optimism about the promise of America.
1: Absolutely. There's a, a very great poem called Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. And in that poem, he directs our attention to um, you know, the buildings that are on the shore and also to the sparkle of the water. And he not only describes them, but he describes us 100, 150, 200 years later seeing the very same thing. And he says, just as you leaned on the rail of the ferry, I lean. And there is this intimate embrace that he draws us into where – We think about ourselves as part of the past and we think about the past as part of the future in a way that's very uplifting (laughs) for us as Americans.
0: Whitman continued to expand and revise Leaves of Grass until his death in 1892. The book's first edition contains 12 poems. The final edition contains 383. With this work... Whitman succeeded in creating a new type of American poetry, a free-flowing, rhythmic, and epic work that emphasized the body of the individual and the nation. Professor New still feels the legacy of Whitman's American vision today.
1: When I go to some sort of historic site and I think, wow, think about who was there then. And when you, in fact, use just what you perceive as a bridge... Uh, that you can cross into a, another moment, that's both enlarging and humbling. It reminds you that the world only belongs to you for a time. <laughs> you may not have figured it all out, um, but that you are part of this continuity.
0: Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Farron Undo- and our intern is Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Lyceum is a curated podcast listening app with a hand-picked catalog of educational shows. Join our show's discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can download the app in the App Store or in Google Play. It's L-Y-C-E-U-M. You can also find us on Twitter, at writlargepod, and on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Next week on writlarge, I talk with Stanford professor Ronald Egan about The Story of the Stone, an 18th century novel that remains one of the most loved books in Chinese literature. There are at least 14 movie adaptations and 10 TV adaptations, and there's a whole field of scholarship dedicated to it called Red Studies. If you ask why Chinese readers have for 300 years so loved this novel, um,
1: they respect it for its honesty. Because to
0: face these problems, which are really endemic problems in traditional Chinese society, to face them as candidly and as openly as this author does it takes a lot of courage, actually. It takes a lot of courage. You can hear this next Tuesday or right now on the Lyceum app. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M. From Penguin Random House and Read It Forward comes The Adaptables, a show that dives into the most buzzed-about book-to-screen adaptations. This season will feature the Hulu adaptation of Celeste Ng's Little Fires Everywhere. We're all stuck at home, but TV and podcasts help us to pass the time and stay connected. After you watch Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu, be sure to tune in to The Adaptables, which brings together authors, insiders, and Celeste Ng herself to discuss each episode of the show, the makings of a great adaptable, and why watching and reading are important self-care rituals. Hosted by two binge-watching, book-loving best friends, Abby Wright and Emma Schaefer, The Adaptables is your friendly guide to -to book-to-screen adaptations. Tune in for conversations and interviews with best-selling authors like Taylor Jenkins Reid and Camille Perry, L.com senior writer R. Eric Thomas, the hosts of the Bad on Paper podcast, Grace Atwood and Becca Freeman, and other authorities on the books and shows you love to binge. You can find The Adaptables anywhere you listen to podcasts or visit readitforward.com. Check them out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Read It Forward. If you want to suggest a future adaptation for the show or just want to say hi, email adaptablespod at gmail.com.